Good afternoon. My name is Fanion de Chatelier. I am a senior from Haiti, majoring in Spanish in interdisciplinary and sociology and political science. I would like to welcome you to the January series of 2012 at Calvin College. Let's pray. Majestic and precious God, thank you for your kindness and your steadfast love and your ability to protect and provide for your children all over the world. Thank you for organizations and individuals whom you have used to, take, to make a difference in the lives of Haitians. Lord, we pray that you may instill endurance and strength in the life of the Haitians who cannot cling to hope. We pray for order. May you help the Haitian government discern the different and correct way to lead the people. May the speech we hear today help us celebrate those who have dedicated their lives to find solutions to alleviate the conditions of those who are being constantly marginalized. Amen. And now, Aaron Winkle, Association Chaplain, will introduce our guest. Today, we welcome Ralph Edmond to the January series stage. Mr. Edmond is the CEO of Farmatrix, a successful Haitian manufacturing company. Mr. Edmond began Farmatrix in 1989 with his best friend, $2,000 and three employees. And I believe that you and your friend made up two of the three. Before the earthquake in 2010, the company had grown to more than 80 employees and annual sales of $2 million. Mr. Edmund's success is impressive by any standard, but particularly so when you consider the many hurdles he has overcome. Mr. Edmund's success has made him the target of an assassination attempt. In addition, members of his family have been kidnapped and held hostage. Beyond threats to his safety and those he loves, Mr. Edmund has dealt with the challenges of refusing to participate in the business as usual of bribes and threats. In the face of tremendous risk, Mr. Edmund remains hopeful. When asked why, he explains, I am building things. I have hope. We will stand together as part of the solution for Haiti. But Mr. Edmund's impact extends far beyond the manufacturing floor of Farm Matrix. Mr. Edmund has, been, has helped revitalize his crumbling community. He mentors emerging entrepreneurs and promotes dialogue among business, community, and gang leaders in his community. Mr. Edmund didn't always define his work this way. However, in 1999, God intervened. Edmund reluctantly attended a business as calling conference held right here at Calvin College. Sponsored by partners worldwide, the conference introduced Mr. Edmund to a whole new way of doing business. The conference served as a catalyst. Mr. Edmund left with a transformed understanding of how to integrate his Christian faith into his calling in business, and he has brought that transformed vision back to his native Haiti. Eight days ago, January 12, we remember the two-year anniversary of the catastrophic earthquake that devastated Haiti. Today, we hear from one of the heroes who stayed to be a part of the rebuilding of Haiti. Following his presentation, Mr. Edmund will be available in the West Lobby, and at his request, Mr. Doug Seebeck, co-author of My Business, My Calling, uh, in which a chapter is features Mr. Edmund, will join him and be available as well. Calvin College is grateful to Miller Johnson for underwriting today's presentation. Will you please join me in wel welcoming Mr. Ralph Edmund?
Good morning. What you already told is the first time I came here was 1999, and it was in June, I believe. <laughs> I would strongly recommend that Calvin change the January series to the summer series. <laughs> I'm Haitian, born and raised, and I think you will think that we don't have that kind of snow in Haiti. And, and coming out of the plane in Chicago, someone told me, it's one of the coldest nights on record. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, I would like to thank you all for coming. I would like to thank Calvin College for having me. And uh, I would first of all like to tell you a bit about me. My name is Ralph Edmund, as was told before. I was born in Haiti, born and raised, studied in Haiti for high school, went to university in Haiti, studied to become a pharmacist. Then in 1985, I went to the U.S. in New York, and I studied business at Bull College. I went back home in 1989 and started a small company, and we had at the time 10,000 goods, which at the time roughly was about 2,000 U.S. dollars. And then we started that company with two products and three employees, counting myself and my partner. <laughs> and today we manufacture more than 50 products, and we've been having close to 10, 15, 20% annual growth for the last 10 years. Although we had a, uh, a bump after the quake, I will come back to that. And uh, all of you, we're looking to build a bigger plant, and we're working on a more than $10 million project to build a plant. But at that time, we'll be looking at the Caribbean countries next to us as, as, as possible, possible export markets. Uh, Christy called this conference Real Solutions for Haiti. It's kind of a hard thing for me to be standing there and bring solutions. But what I will do is share with you my experience in Haiti and the things I think needs to be done. First thing, if you talk about real solution, you have to look at the problems. And that's one of the things that's not done very well in Haiti. We tend not to look at the issues and work around them. So if we need solutions, we have first identify the problems and address them. And it's in addressing these problems, it doesn't matter how long or hard it is, but until we start tackling them, there won't be no real solutions. The solutions that we have in Haiti now is working around the government. I've been telling you being in Haiti doesn't work. Solution that Haitians have is the government will steal the money. We're not going to pay the taxes. Again, working around the government, it does not work. Uh, one of the solutions against that they have is, okay, this country is too hard for me. First chance I have, I'm going to exit. It still doesn't work because there's nobody left to build it. So what I will do today is highlight four major issues to me that have to be addressed. And maybe I don't have the right strategy for all of them, but until they're addressed we still be in that stage, in that vicious circle, 
going from bad to worst, worst to bad, and bad to worst. And, and I've seen so many people coming from the States, good-hearted people, giving their life money, time, and after five, seven trips, saying, you know, this country is a lost case. There's nothing that can be done. I'll go to Kenya next time. And, and, and to me, is the solution starts first. We have to address the problem. What are the problems that I see? First one, boom, out of the box. Corruption. Endemic corruption of all parts of government, private, and civil sector. Everybody in Haiti is corrupt. There's, uh, I hope there's no one from the Haitian police here. <laughs> but I, I see that very strongly. Because until we understand the extent of the problem, gonna, everybody is corrupt. If you've been there, down there for a long time, it's very hard to keep your mind straight. I'll take any one of you, I'll put you down there for two years, your mind will be corrupted. And you have to know that. You have to know that your mind will be attacked, that you'll be corrupted, and if you don't pay any attention, you'll be part of the problem and not of the solution. And corruption, to me, has not been addressed yet in the open. Second problem that we have, poverty. It's just that one thing that we produce. We may have the higher per capita poverty in the world. I mean, I spent, after the quake, I left my family in Miami. So I spent like 15 days in Miami with the family, and 50 days in Haiti. My first ride after 15 days from the airport to my office is always the hardest. I always feel like telling my driver, turn back. I ain't staying, man. This is impossible. But the funny thing is, by the time I leave my office at 5, 6 o'clock, I'm already used to it. And there's no problem. I can't wait to get home. Go call my wife. I'm waving hello to everybody. It's fine. That poverty that we have, to an extent that until you see it, you won't believe it, breeds violence. And that's why you have so much violence now in the country. So many gangs, kidnappings, killings, and so forth. That's one of the problems that we have. We have, you know, I was in the Dominican Republic the other day, and I met with some of the other business leaders, and I've realized these business leaders, they build huge manufacturing companies in the Dominican Republic. And, and their commitment to their country and their economy was long-term. In Haiti, we have huge import-export businesses. But the commitment of an import-export versus a manufacturing commitment is two different things. And that's also one thing that has to be addressed. The private investors, they have to commit more, and they must, must fulfill the fiscal and social obligation. If we do business in Haiti, we're not doing business in the U.S., or in any country in the world, we're doing business in the poorest country of the world, so we must fulfill our social obligation. That's the third one. 
The fourth one, to me, which is also important, there's no dialogue. There's no talking in between different social class. Just like wars in between classes. Oops, sorry. And these walls, can you still hear me? Very good. And these walls also help the violence. It's very easy for someone that I don't talk to, to whom I'm pictured like the enemy. Oh, that's that guy from the private sector. He's the one getting all the money. You should go after him. It's easy then to come and kidnap my family. It's easy then to shoot at me while I'm going to work and try to kill me. I think that's one thing we need to have more dialogue between Haitians. Because in Haiti, unfortunately, the other is the enemy. And he has no right to life. I mean, I've been to meetings with my fellow businessmen and heard, and heard people say, we should go to Cité Soleil and drop a bomb. Kill them all. There is people, they're all after us. They want to kill us. You know, and I've been to community meetings where I've heard the same thing. Oh, these bourgeois. But then again, guess what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You will realize I did not mention natural disasters. I didn't mention earthquake as a problem. I didn't mention floods. There's one hard thing I realized during the quake. During the quake, I was at, I was at, I was at a community meeting in Saint Martin, which is next to my plant, which is one of the most violent areas, at least used to be, in Port-au-Prince. And we were trying to program a visit the next Tuesday, which was to be the 19th, of investors from Ireland, Irish investors, to see how they could come and invest in the neighborhood. And going back home, home after the quake, I had to park my car because there was no way to drive. And it wasn't the earthquake that killed all these people. It was the buildings. You know, you were alive or dead, depending if she were in a building that collapsed or not. And, and that's, that's one thing I want Asians to understand. The earthquake didn't kill us. The building that we built killed us. And it's something we can do about it. Same thing with the floods. Heavy rains don't have to bring flood. Deforestation, lack of dams where we need them, that creates floods. So then again, so the four major problems that I see us having, uh, I won't say natural disasters is one of them. But natural disasters are one of the main reasons why we had so much relief work going on in Haiti in the last five to ten years. Again, before I address these four issues, whenever I hear someone talk about Haiti, this country needs to be reconstructed. They need road, electricity, water, <clears throat> sewage, telecommunication. Yes, that's true. But to me, that's not the first thing that needs to be done. The first, need, the first thing that we need before we reconstruct the infrastructure is to construct the Haitian man. It's to construct on the human level. And that, that construction needs to be done not only with Haitian, 
but also with anyone involved in Haiti. You know, change our perspective, the way we look at Haiti. Haiti is not a place just to go and do relief work and charity work. I want everyone to see Haiti like a place to build things, invest your money, be businessmen, create economic growth. Because the answer to poverty, unfortunately, is not charity or relief work. The answer to poverty is investment and economic growth. So it's important to change the way we look at Haiti. For my Asian brothers, you know, I can maybe think of my personal experience. I remember when I first came here, and uh, there was Milkayos from Partners. He asked me that funny question, what can we do for you? And I looked at him funny. I said, there must be a trick in that question. There must be something I don't get. And I directed my Haitian friends not to answer. Don't answer that question. <laughs> maybe, maybe they want us for the CIA or something. Shh, be very careful. And, and then I remember uh, that there was a presentation by the CEO of Service Enterprise. And the man had a $7 billion industry company. And he was talking about his social and, and spiritual endeavors. You see... Coming from Haiti, to me, that was like, whoa, where does he come from? Then going back, I told my friends, you know, I've met a few businessmen in, in, in Michigan, and they don't have the same God that we have. Their God is different. And then my sister told me, no, their God is the same. They are different. <laughs> and, and, and then that's when I really started to, to look again at my personal life. And uh, like some good friend of mine, you know, I didn't want to come to that conference. To me, it was like a bunch of, because I'm Catholic still, thank you. And and I look at it like a bunch of protestant pastors. They're going to come, they're going to try to convert me. "Ah, Be very careful with these people. But, But I came and I think it's a blessing that I'm standing here today to speak to you the way I was spoken to. In 1999, it's really a blessing. And my personal change, you know, if there's one place in Scripture that I, that I can put it, it would be Romans 13. I mean, whenever I read it, it's so clear to me. First thing that he says, you have to abide by the law. Respect the law. Pay your taxes. And then he says something that's very important. And I don't know if you're familiar with Haitian men in the, the Asian culture or the Caribbean culture, you have to be faithful to your wife. You know, coming from Haiti and being a businessman, abide to the law, pay your taxes, be faithful to your wife, these are things that we taught when we, get, when we grew up. I mean, we, 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 we raised to be like macho guys. You know, we're good looking, we get what we want. We get moving. And then they'll boop, be faithful to your wife. For real. <laughs> and you don't do that because it's simply because you have to, but you do it out of love. So I have a lot, 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 lots of my friends are involved now with the new Haitian government. And whenever they see me, Ralph, we're going to build the country. And I'll say, okay, I have three questions for you. 
before you build that country? What are you doing with your wife? Money and taxes and alcohol. And most of them we say, ah, oh, you know, money I'm good, but hey, the, the woman thing, I say, all right, until you solve that, until you rebuild yourself, you ain't gonna build anything, my friend. I'm sorry. Okay, let's now address the corruption. One percent of all the money that was given to Haiti reached the government. All, all the money went through the NGOs. And we have in Haiti that republic of NGO, that huge web of NGO, and they're all doing the programs. The NGOs are, in a sense, a non-centralized government. And I remember during the quake, I got a hold of the Salvation Army who gave me two containers that I wanted to distribute to my friends in Saint-Martin. And when I got there, there was already three other NGOs doing the same thing. In the meantime, there were other camps that weren't receiving anything. There is no coordination in NGO work. One of the very simple reasons is NGOs compete with the same donors. So they don't talk to each other. At least in Haiti. I don't see them talking and doing coordination. And why is it that way? Because the government is corrupt. If the issue is corruption, then corruption shall be addressed, not work around. Then, then, and also, most of the time, unfortunately, NGOs, when they come with the goods from abroad, they tend to hurt the local players who are either selling or manufacturing this good locally. And NGOs specialize in relief and charity work. What we need now is for NGOs to transform themselves into sustainable development, into investment, into economic growth. Most of them will tell me, that's not what we built for. My answer to that is, that's what we need. That's what we need. And it also gives a free pass to the government. Government doesn't have to do anything. They just stand on their head because everything is going to be done by the NGO. There's a big, powerful NGO which is involved in health. They opened a hospital right next to the second largest one that the government has, right next to it. So what happened is people, since they have a better service, leave the government hospital and they go to them. And when they will shut theirs, the government will be already shut down. My answer is NGO work with the government. Instead of building your hospital, reinforce the one they have. And when you leave, you'll have one that is reinforced. Because by the time they leave, where we are to, there will be none. And we see that all the time. And also, when you put it next to an existing structure, what about places where there's no structure? So, the answer is, it has to go to a central entity, and all programs should come from that entity. That entity is corrupt. The best way for me to address corruption is to bring it under the light. There's no corruption program or anti-corruption program per se that I know of. But the only thing that I see that is positive is we've had some major investment in the country from foreign subsidiaries, and one of them is a company named Digicel, 
and they have invested over the last 10 years $600 million in Haiti. Last year, they paid more than $60 million in taxes and fees to the government, and they brag about it. You know, oh, look at what we've done. You know, I think it's very important because it changes the mental, lands- mental landscape. You know, and that corruption must be brought under the light. Mark, you know, talk about anti-corruption. Good behaviors to have and point fingers to the corrupted ones. Because now the thing is, corruption is the accepted way of doing business, either public, private, civil sector. Pharmatrix and myself, we pay all our taxes. And the system always tries to get me crooked. Always. Always. When we get things to customs, they always try to keep them for longer. They will call me and say, we made a mistake on your, on your form, but you can correct it. You have to write to the Minister of Finance. We will write to that guy, write to that guy. That will take three months. Or send a thousand US dollars, we'll correct it by the way. The system always tries, if you're straight, to get you crooked. But, you know, luckily, I would say I have a few good friends who are also in business, and that's what we're promoting, the new way of doing things. Because my question to everyone, what do we have to lose? We have nothing to lose, because what we have now is not working. President Martelly was new in power, young guy, very energetic. You know, his goal is to rebuild things, but to me, his greatest, greatest achievement would be if he were to bring back decency, honesty, integrity into public affairs. Then the next government that comes after will have to abide by the new paradigm, and then change will be much, much more efficient. Much, much more efficient. So my answer to corruption is to address it, bring it out into the light, and have dialogue and program that will address anti-corruption. As of now, there's nothing against corruption in Haiti, and it is the accepted way of living. Now, when I talk about business and poverty, to me, business is a gift. You know, like I said before, I wish God would have given me the gift of playing basketball like I was like six foot eight, which I'm not. <laughs> or maybe playing football or soccer or maybe singing. I can't sing. Wasn't a good soccer player. I'm certainly not six eight. Then, uh, you know, it was hard for me to come to terms that I will never be six eight. <laughs> But I have a gift. I'm a businessman in Haiti, and that's my gift. That's what I have. And that's what I do. You know, I have to do the best with what I have. And to me, business for countries in an environment like Haiti can be instruments of change, development, social harmony. Not what people say, these guys come, get their money, and run. I will invite the churches, whichever entity, the NGOs, when they come down 
to start shifting the focus from relief charity to investment, economic growth. Bring down your investment bankers, your entrepreneurs, your business people. Bring them down on mission trip. You know, they're not, you know, don't shy them away like you. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to take you down there. You're a businessman. We, we, we just take the doctors, yes. Bring the nurses, yes. Bring your educators, but also bring them. Bring the businessmen, especially those who are involved in transformation. Bring them, bring them. And also, you know, when you, you're looking at Haiti, any funds that you have, Look towards buying locally. I think next week, with partners worldwide, we're having a major conference where we'll put the NGOs with the Haitian business in the same room so they can talk, share, to see what is being done, what is being made or sold in Haiti so the NGOs can come and, and buy more from them. But Haitian people need to change so when you do make and earn a better living, you remember, pay your taxes and be socially responsible. Being socially responsible, you do it for two, two, two reasons. You first do it out of love, then it's also good business. It's good business. Especially when we had the food riot three years ago, the only business that nobody touched was that company I told you, Digicel. Because they pay their taxes and they have a huge social programs. So it can be done. It can be done. And as for the poverty, you know, I've been involved in a program with an uh, NGO called Concern, which is an Irish NGO. They've gone into Saint-Martin, which is a very violent area. And I have something to say about Saint-Martin. It was in 2005. It was a Wednesday morning, 10.50. I dropped my mother to work. The reason why I dropped her myself was the country was in a violent cycle. And I didn't want her driver to take her to work. So I took her to work myself driving her car. My driver was driving my car. So when I dropped her, I said, okay, I'm going to go to work. My driver was driving... After 100 meters, I told him, stop the car. Let me drive. He said, why do you want to drive? I said, if something happens, I won't hesitate to move and do anything I want with the car. You will hesitate. Ten minutes after, wind traffic, a bunch of people in the streets, and then there's the guys who come right by the window of a gun, and they start shooting. I weaved, I hear two bullets, but in fact there were four. And the driver who was in my seat got hit with a bullet and almost died. And that was in Saint Martin, right by my office. So when I heard of that program, that Saint Martin concern got with the community people, with the gang leaders in Saint Martin, and they were inviting the private sector to come in, I jumped in. I jumped in. And my vision for business is we should, the government, and that's, that's, that's what I, I'll be talking, and I'm going to be talking so loud so they, they hear me. They won't shut me down. The only one who can shut me down is my wife. 
<laughs> Nobody else can. <laughs> and my view is give incentive to business, particularly manufacturing businesses, to invest in the most violent places in Haiti. So they can create jobs, develop social programs for the kids, so we can compete for the youth, compete for them against the gangs, against the politicians that turns them into gang members. That's, that's, that's my vision for business. Give me a tax break so I will go there. But ask me, 20% of the tax break that you have, invest in social programs. Compete for the youth. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. That's the problem in Haiti. Everybody is losing hope. Haitian giving up. International communities say, oh, there's nothing we can do with this country. I'm saying, address the issues. Do not run away from them. Address them. Then we have a chance. Then we have a chance. And uh, same thing as for social dialogues. You know, the dialogue that I'm involved with, you know, there's two work that I do in Haiti that are very dear to me. The one that I do with Partners Worldwide Mentoring and the one that I do is called 3PSM, Partnership for Peace and Prosperity in St. Martin, where I'm part of the private sector, but we talk to community leaders, gang members, you know, where we're all together and then we're trying to solve, solve the problem. What happens when you talk, first thing that I realize, not all these guys, they want to kill me. Because that's the vision, you know. I, I, we live, you know, we, the business owners and people of so-called wealth in AD, at a distance because we want to protect ourselves and our families. It is natural. I mean, why should I go out if I know that guy is either going to try to kill me or kidnap someone from my family? I mean, that's, but I've realized the answer is actually the opposite. We should take all the walls, transform them into bridges, and walk to the other side. It's not easy. And, and I will say, I think the U.S. should do the same all over the world. Have these walls become bridges. It takes time. They don't trust me in the first. I don't trust them. But it gets to a point where everyone gets to have their human identity. Where they're no longer the gang member, and I'm no longer that business owner trying to suck money from everyone that I see so I can become richer. So it's very, 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 very important. So to me, it is reversible. The biggest thing to lose is to lose hope. The hardest time that I ever had in AD, my darkest time, when, when I lost hope. And I thought, that's it. My business is going to go nowhere. This country is going to go nowhere. What am I going to do with my family? You know, whenever I lost hope, Haiti was a very, very difficult place to be. And I will engage to, see, to say, when you lose hope anywhere in the world, it's a difficult place to be, especially if it is cold. 
I, I would like to, to, to again, quickly, quickly. Uh, uh, my presentation was about the real solution start by identifying the real issues and tackling the real issues, not working around them. Corruption, corruption in aid is an issue, tackle corruption. Poverty breeds violence, fight poverty by bringing investment in the most violent places and encourage business leaders to do social programs in the most violent places in Haiti. That way, they will end up sharing their lives and letting the other see, the other who is the enemy, see, I'm not who you think I am. And you will also see they're not who you think they are. And that being there will be part of a larger dialogue where Haitians can be together, where the other, won't, the other won't be the enemy, but the brother, and then we can move forward. Uh, one funny quick question, uh, uh, anecdote actually. Getting shot at, you know, you can realize something that, uh, that, uh, that hurts your emotions, to say the least. Uh, I didn't like it. Uh, it pissed me off, man. I mean, I really didn't. I mean, what, what, what is that thing? I'm going to work. I have a family. I have employees to take care of. And that dude comes and shoots at me. He decides that I have to die. What, what, what is that? And I remember, you know, we, we, I was fleeing with the car. Then, pow, pow, pow. Then at a certain time, you hear the back window going. Kri, 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 kri. And then when I hear no more shots, I look. At, at the mirror, he puts a big gun here and he smiles. He's laughing and everybody's watching. I, 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 I was like the one who was out of place. And that, I mean, I was angry. And when I got into the program, I remember one night, I knew the gang leaders would be there. Then I said, okay, Ralph, you're going to go in that meeting and you are going to be quiet. See, I'm going to be quiet. Then the gang leaders start to come, and they do their thing. They have a walk. But I, I, you know, it's, after now I can tell it's all a show because they're scared. They're scared to change. Because violence is what they know. And then they walk in there. And then nobody talks. And then one of them starts talking. And then I said, come on. These guys are not going to come up here and think they can rule the world. And I go, I stand up, I say, you, which one of you shot at me? But that's a good year after, year, year and a half after. And, and they like, they look at me like, who's that guy? Mm. Because you know, you have to remember, that dialogue is taking place in their part of the world. I'm in Saint Martin, in their territory. I still have to go back, walk to my car. All right? So they look at me, the first thing is like, because they're not used to someone matching them step by step. And I said, what are you talking about? Go sit down. I said, why don't you come and have me sit down? Then things such as, then what, I said, they're talking, be careful, maybe he has the police with him, you know, and then they don't know what to do. I said, which one have you shot at me? I was shot at that particular day, that particular time, that particular place. And it was, and I looked at it and said, it was your gang that works there. Was it your guy who shot at me? Was it you? 
Why? Why did you shoot at me? Why is it that you want me dead because I'm in a country and I'm trying to build things? What's, the, what, what's your thing? Then he goes, oh, 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 oh. And I say, you know what? It's been 18 months. And I'm glad I'm seeing you because I can finally tell you, if you ever see the guy that shot at me, tell him that I forgive him. And this gang leaders, they were like, uh, and one of them said, uh, you know, if the guy shot at you in broad daylight, most likely he's dead by now. And, but we'll take your forgiveness for him. So the lesson of the story, there's always hope. Let's talk to each other. Thank you. Mr. Edmund has generously agreed to take some questions from us, so there will be microphones uh, up in the balcony and then here as well. If you'd like to move to a place, I'll call on you, and then he'll respond. We'll begin here. Thank you so much for your advice. Um, Thank you so much. I just have a question. Um, You talk about hope and just Haitians helping out. And... How far is too far um, for an individual that is in Haiti laying down his life or her life to help Haitians and um, risking um, his safety or her safety to help his brothers and sisters? And how, how far would, would you um, go to help someone that is that wants to kill you, that wants to threaten your family? How do you balance those two when you also have your own family to take care of? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, First thing that I want you to understand, I don't want to die. That's not part of my plan for now. I hope it's not part of God's plan either. (laughs) Uh, To me, I will talk to you, but I need you to do a change in your ways. If, If you are still intent but killing me and kidnapping me, that will hurt the dialogue process. You know, I'm, I'll be coming to you and open my hands, but I will expect you to do the same thing. You know, and, and, and if you don't do the same thing, then I think there are means by which I can try to protect myself. Legal means, by the way, because I'm not a gang member. <laughs> and, uh, and to me, how far is too far? No one should put his or her life in jeopardy especially if, if he or she has responsibility towards his family and his employees. But so far, so far, there's instances like, like right now where there's two guys particularly with whom I have problems because they refuse to open their hands and, and, and they want to stick to their violent means. You know, these guys, whenever I know they will be around, I always try to protect myself. Because it won't make any sense, and it won't help the dialogue process if, if I get hurt. Because what I'm telling you, I'm telling the same thing to my Haitian business brothers in Haiti. And if something happens to me, be easy for, oh, we knew it, we knew it, that was crazy, and that's the end of it. So, you know, and how far is, you, you must, 
do the best you can to stay alive. And be very careful. And not be naive. I'm not a naive man. I'm a businessman. And that's something that I really love to say. One plus one always equals two. If it equals something else, be careful. Yes, good afternoon. Um, could you possibly provide, maybe after the session, the name of a business organization or NGO that is active in um, micro-business development in Haiti? I'm asking, uh, representing some volunteer groups in, uh, in Michigan and elsewhere. And, and we would be interested in knowing, uh, because micro-business seems to be a, an excellent way to, to help. Oh, we have a good one. What, you know, I see Dave Gensing, Dave Zashu. Yeah, Partners Worldwide, which is based right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They do a good, good, good job supporting micro-businesses and, and helping them grow, foster them, giving them mentors and access to capital. Yeah. Well, maybe, who is this now? Oh, okay. So I'll catch you. Thank you. Hey, is, is it dog next to you? All right. <laughs> Mr. Eden, thank you for your thank dedicated you. life. Uh, there's a story in the New York Times front page today about the trial of the eight police officers that were found guilty of the prison massacre in Haiti. And it talks about, it's appropriate on a day like this, sponsored by a law firm, that the trial represents a rare victory for the rule of law in Haiti. And William O'Neill, a Haiti uh, a lawyer with decades of experience in Haiti, said, wow, this is a real landmark moment for justice in Haiti to get some senior law enforcement officials held accountable with fairly serious sentence, it's really historic. Would you comment on that, please? Oh, definitely. Haiti is not a country, you know, where we abide by the law, and especially if you're in power, close to power, and no people in power, nothing will happen to you, no matter what you do. I think these police officers, first of all, they had given a side of the story that was quickly believed to be true by the Haitian establishment. I think it took the New York Times to send people to investigate and realize that story wasn't true. But everybody on the streets knew the story wasn't true. Everybody. And it was common knowledge that the police officers opened fire knowingly on unharmed prisoners. I mean, everybody knew it. But the official story was it was a prisoner that actually killed the others before fleeing. And it's always like that in Haiti. It's always like that. I mean, I would say a good 30%, 40% of kidnappings, police officers are involved in them. And what happens to them? Nothing. Nothing. So to have a case where police officers are tried and put in jail is the same thing as Digicel paying their taxes and telling to everyone we pay our taxes. I think these are good signs. Very, very good signs. And I'm very, very encouraged by it. Um, hello. Uh, I'm a senior engineering student here at Calvin. And uh, for a senior design project, we're working on a low-cost um, sort of cement panel that's going to work into a structure for homes. And I guess I was just wondering if you could speak towards the housing market and how much of that is a problem of it and how much the cost of housing is affecting Haitians. Yeah, the housing industry in Haiti is one of the most vibrant, but most of the income for the housing comes from the diaspora, 
people sending money. People were, Haitians were living abroad and sending money to their family in Haiti so they can build these houses. And, and we've lost, I think, more than 200,000 homes during the earthquake. So, of course, it's going to be a vibrant market. But the, the new houses that we have to build have to be light and quick resistant. And uh, to me, whatever has to be done in housing, giving the houses away free is not the correct answer. The right answer would be, what can we do so Haitian could have the means to build these houses themselves, pay for them, and maintain them? If we stay the way we are, we can build the most beautiful country and come back 10 years after, even a worse shape than what we have today. So my advice would be, whatever you're going to do, make it sustainable, make sure that you transfer, build a company in Haiti, have partners, you know, see it as a business venture, and, and, and transfer the knowledge, even if you control it, whatever controlling interest you can keep in the, in the company, but make sure that the, 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 the possibility, the capacity to build, own, and maintain is grown locally. Always be like another vicious circle again. And you'll be very, very discouraged and lose hope because you had given something and nothing happened. For the gentleman who just spoke, uh, clean water is a necessity of life and is very much absent for those uh, who have had the honor and privilege of being there and who have received more than they have what little we can give. My question, however, is to the next cycle of elections within Haiti, will the Haitian peoples be able to maturate to the next election versus what happened or what has happened from the first election, and especially as the memory of the earthquake fades from U.S. and national thought processes. Thank you. Hmm. Elections in Haiti. Uh, still two words that don't match quite well. Elections in Haiti. Uh, uh, but same thing as the Digicel endeavor, as the endeavor of putting in jail police officers we had, we had, it was our fourth election. We had one in 1990. President Aristide came into power, was sent into exile by the army. We had an election after that. President Preval came into power. Came into power. Then Aristide had fake elections and was again thrown out of power. Preval came back. And the election that we had the other day, although it brought violence, it was the first time in our history that someone from the opposition won power through elections. The only way you had change from opposition to ruling party was through violent means. And, and, and I think we're gaining maturity in that, in, in that process. Of course, we need to work, you know, we're still very, very young. I, I think we look at it on the good side. We had elections, and we changed system through elections. We have a parliament, and we understand that nothing can, done, can be done unless you go to them. It's about the same thing here, too. 
Nothing goes through unless you go to parliament. That's why nothing works. I don't know. I was just <laughs> oh, I'm neither Republican, neither Democrat. I'm Haitian. So <laughs> and that by itself, <laughs> it's a party. <laughs> uh, I, you know, elections to me, although we had violence last time, I will tell you, was a positive sign, and that was also, should also sign of maturity. It's going to be a wrong road toward real democracy, and, and at least I think we're on the road, but every time we have election, it is a difficult time. We are scheduled to have a parliamentary election next year, or at the end of this year, and, and an election again in three years, and uh, these are not easy times, but I think we, we're making progress. All right. Okay, the question was, uh, would I comment on the manufacturing plant that President Clinton is helping set up north of the country and also in the hospital that Paul Farmer from Partners in Health is building, teaching hospital, uh, actually in Plateau Central, which is more middle of the country. Uh, center of the... Uh, let's go. F f what is putting put in the north... It's not a manufacturing plant only. It's a manufacturing area, free zone, that will employ more than 20,000 people. It's kind of the same thing I was talking of, you know, bring the investment, especially the everyone's, in the area where you have the most poverty and the most violence. And again, I would say, I was, to me, it's a positive sign. The teaching hospital from Paul Farmer, I don't want to go too much into it because... I haven't read too much about it, but the teaching hospital to, 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 to educate doctors, unless they educate doctors from abroad only, that would be a bad idea. But if they educate doctors that will perform and stay in Haiti, I would welcome it, yeah. But if all the doctors are students coming from outside of the country and going back, then it doesn't make any sense. That happens also. So that's why I'm saying it. <laughs> well, I think that takes us to the end of our time. Will you please join me in thanking once again Mr. Ralph Edmund? Thank you. Thank you.